Welcome to the Bicom podcast. This is Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. Today is Thursday, the 17th of November. Earlier this week, MK Benjamin Netanyahu formally received the mandate from President Herzog and, as we speak, is busy assembling his coalition. One of the most significant issues on the agenda here in Israel is that of judicial reform. And today I'm delighted to be joined with one of Israel's leading legal experts, Professor Susie Navot. Professor, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you, Richard. By way of introduction, Professor Navot is the Vice President of the Israel Democracy Institute, and she is an expert in constitutional law, specialising in parliamentary law and comparative constitutional law. Before joining the, the IDI, she held a range of academic posts, including at the National Security College and a visiting professor at the Sorbonne in Paris. Professor Navot, if we can start perhaps just reflecting on the election results, some have interpreted them as a rise in populism, potentially even leading to an erosion of democracy. How do you feel this, is, uh, this kind of world phenomenon is reflected in Israel specifically? Uh, well, thank you very much, Richard. I think, um, indeed, um, Israel is a, a very, um, I think, unique country when it comes to dealing with the dangers of populism and democratic erosion, because the constitutional structure of Israel ex exposes it to these dangers even more than in any other democratic country, because in every country there are mechanisms, there are tools that decentralize political power. In every country, you have checks and balances between the powers. You have a rigid constitution, usually, well, with the exception of two or three countries. You have the splitting of the legislative authority into two houses. You have in, um, in presidential countries, the right of veto given to the president on legislation or a federal structure or, or a regional electoral system. And sometimes even the existence of like in Europe, the existence of international organizations and courts. All of these are part of the checks and balances and none of these exist in Israel. So we are unique because Israel is the only country among three countries that does not have any tool for the decentralization of political power. And the most important problem in Israel, especially following these elections, is the fact that in, unlike any other place in the world, any ordinary majority in our parliament in the Knesset, an ordinary majority, any ordinary majority can enact, amend and delete any basic law or any law in a normal lawmaking procedure in three readings and even within one day, which means that the politicians in Israel and only in Israel, they have the possibility to change the constitutional rules of the game at any time at will the system of government, the nature of Israel. All you need is 61. 61 is the magic number in Israel because <clears throat> the Knesset is comprised of 120 members of parliament, members of Knesset. And 61 is the magic number because it's not only the minimal number needed to form a government, a coalition, but 61 in Israel has a completely different meaning. 61 members of the Knesset is all you need to change Israel's constitution, to change the authority of the court, the system of government, to become a presidential state or a monarchy, a non-democratic state, or to limit or even delete 
and human right. And that makes Israel really, um, I think, very problematic when uh, we are talking about the dangers of populism and the power or the absolute power of the ruling coalition. Thank you for that. So kind of le leading on from there, one of the, uh, the, the leading issues that is on the agenda here is the issue of um, the override clause. Um, perhaps before we get into that, you could just start and kind of outline what that means and what is the background of the override clause. Okay, um, we have in Israel basic laws, which are above the normal laws. They have constitutional status, but they're very easy to amend. So it's not exactly a constitution like you know around the world. And we have two basic laws dealing with human rights. But human rights in the basic laws are not absolute. Okay? The Knesset may limit them. The Knesset may infringe upon the rights according to the needs of the state or the rights of others, like in every other place. Okay? Rights are not absolute. But in order to limit these rights, the rules are very clear. And are very um, and are and they have been established in the basic laws themselves. It <laughs> providing, for example, that the Knesset may limit human rights if this limitation is or infringement is proportionate and is for a good or proper purpose. So these have been the rules of the game for thirty years. So if the Knesset wants to enact a law that actually violates a human right or limits in, in a way that it's very extreme. For example, to our, to, to, um, for, for our privacy or deny the right to go to and, pro and protest in the streets. It will be, if the Knesset passed this law, it will be an unconstitutional law and the Supreme Court may judicially review it. Okay, so for a period of almost 30 years, about 20 laws, mainly sections, have been declared void and constitutional by the Supreme Court. So, so this is the background for the override itself. The override is something that we have copied from Canada, and it, it is a section that will allow the Knesset to enact laws that infringe human rights, even if these laws are disproportionate and for a wrong purpose. And if the court declares void a law that is uh, that infringes human rights in a way that is extreme or disproportionate, then the majority of the Knesset, by a majority of 61, will be able to enact it again, because this is the will of the majority. It may sound democratic to some people, but democracy is not only the rule of the majority, definitely not. Democracy is also an effective protection of human rights, especially the rights of minorities. And therefore the override rule is actually intended um, to allow the Knesset to overcome, to overcome us. It's about mm -hmm. our right, us, the people. It will allow our rights to be limited in a disproportionate way. The right to equality, the freedom of speech, a woman's right to her body perhaps, freedom of religion or the right to property. So this is very problematic because even in those rare cases in which the court exercises its power to judicial review, then the Knesset, if this override clause is passed, the Knesset will be able with a normal coalition majority of 61 to reenact the law and it will remain in effect. 
And it means that a political majority will always be able to deny the minority its rights. And you know what Lord Acton, the English Lord Acton said? Sure. That power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So this is a problem of the override clause. Now, having said, having said that, I am not against it. I think an override clause may be suitable for Israel in a very specific context as a part of a, you know, completing the constitution, a compromise between all okay, the, the sectors of society uh, and a compromise that will give constitutional protection to our institutions, to the Knesset, to the Supreme Court, to the government, and, and of course, to the rights and fundamental values of the state. So, and it's interesting when looking at the uh, override clause, as my understanding, there were even some members of the outgoing Bennett Lapid government that had also kind of been supportive of such, uh, such moves um, and, uh, and suggested the reform. I wondered if you could just give us uh, an outline of the range of options being discussed um, and kind of where that differentiates itself between what the outgoing government was doing and what potentially this, uh, this, the new, co new coalition could potentially look to do. Well, actually, at the moment, we do not know what kind of override clause they're thinking about, whether it will be an override clause that will be um, a part of the basic law on human, on human dignity and freedom, it, whether it will be a specific override clause in a new basic law to be enacted. And therefore, actually, we do not know at the moment. I will be, um, I think, much more um, intelligent in this way the moment I see the bill um, you know, presented to us. At the moment, we do not know what are they talking about when they say override. So I, I am not sure whether they want to um, declare that any decision by the court on whatever subject whatsoever will be um, overrided by the, uh, the Knesset. So I think it's very easy, it's very early to tell at the moment, Richard. I understand. But those that support uh, changing the law, what, what problem are they trying to solve? I think they're trying to solve the problem of, um, of the judicial review. You know, the power for judicial review in Israel is not written in any basic law. We have judicial review of laws following, following a monumental decision by the Supreme Court in 1995, declaring that the basic laws have then the court is the branch with the power for judicial review. And therefore, if it has the power, and then this power has been used, you know, very, very um, um, restrict, with, with, um, with restriction, with, um, with restraint, and very carefully for the last 25 years, five years, only around 20 laws have been declared unconstitutional. But if you are looking for, you know, for a section in the law where it says that the court may judicially review laws and declare them unconstitutional, we do not have it. Now, the, the, the Knesset has been trying to enact a basic law dealing with judicial review uh, since 1975 <laughs> with no results. Now, in the last government, Minister of Justice established a public commission representing the eight parties in the coalition to prepare a draft for this basic law. And 
to include in this basic law an, a general override clause. Now, three of the parties in, out of the eight parties in the coalition decided to send professionals to the commission instead of politicians. And I was asked by the Labour Party, this is an anecdote, of course, I was asked by the Labour Party to take part in this committee. Of course, I agreed <laughs> at the very second um, she asked me to, because I, I, it's, uh, you know, it's like a dream to be able to take part in, a, in, in the drafting of the most important basic law in Israel. But we encountered two problems. The first of all is that not all the parties in the Knesset were represented, only the coalition parties. So it was difficult to speak about a compromise. And the second problem what we encountered is that we only had four sessions and then the Knesset decided to disperse. So now it's over. Hmm. So we, if such a basic law was passed, then perhaps a specific override clause may be suitable. A mechanism that will not apply to certain basic rights. I think that you cannot infringe upon the core of human dignity, for example. Upon, you know, you cannot limit the right of access to the courts, the right to vote. Okay. Also, it must be established that, that the Knesset ability to overcome okay, would be limited in time, for example, four years or five years. If we are educating a generation on the idea of constitutionality, then we may allow, okay, the idea of, of, of an override, but only for a transitional period. I understand. Um, I just wanted to kind of compare this of how the kind of how this debate inside Israel, how that compares to other um, democracies and other judicial systems around the world. Well, actually, um, Israel is um, is a mixed system. First of all, which is a very interesting because we share many features. Tradition until uh, I don't know if you know, but until 19, Israeli courts were bound to follow English judge-made law. Okay, mm -hmm. everything that that had happened in Britain, in the United Kingdom, we knew and we had to learn and to teach also. So this article was abolished in, in 1980, but even so, you know, the custom of following English and American traditions still prevails. Um, and um, we are, I think the status of, of everything in, in the legal profession is uh, far more similar to, to England or America than, than to those, you know, in, in Germany or, or France. Now, um, the structures of, the structure of our legal system is, influenced by common law. And we do not have judicial review like England did not have until the Human Rights Act. Judicial decisions here are considered a source of law, okay, like uh, and the, the binding precedent, like, like in, in England. The structure of the judiciary, uh, the rules of evidence and procedure are, um, are very similar to the correspondent systems in common law but we still have a mixture of influence. And we like to copy things from all over the, all over the world, even without thinking about you know, the outcomes. We took the override from Canada, and now we're speaking about um, the, um, the Norwegian law of allowing ministers to, um, to dismiss from the Knesset and in, new members of Knesset entering. We had a biennial, two years budget like in Bahrain 
and we are talking about the French law, you know, that will give it grant immunity to to a prime minister. Um, this is something that Israel uh, likes very much to do. Okay, let's see what they're doing without, you know, thinking about okay. Are we uh, really so close to um, Canada? Do are, are we really so close to the system in France, the culture? Um, do we really, you know, are like the British people who have the the, the cultural um, idea of it is not done? And but this is Israel. It's, it's really a unique country, and we really have a mixture of influences. Um, I wondered if we could kind of um, pivot for a moment and just uh, just for the, for the benefit of our audiences, a lot of this is happening, the government formation, the discussions about judicial review happening at the same time that the incumbent Prime Minister Netanyahu is on trial. I just wondered if you could just give us an update on where on, on how that trial is progressing and uh, and what's happened so far. Okay, for the moment, the, the trial is going on. The investigation against Netanyahu started in uh, 2017 and the indictment was filed in January 2020. And now let me tell you that we are in November 2022, which is almost three years since the indictment was filed. And we are hearing, I think, the 20th witness out of almost 300, which means that we are still at the beginning of the evidence, of the presentation of evidence in the district court. And of course, this case may be appealed by both sides before the Supreme Court. And now let me tell you something about it because I'm, I am, I'm sure you know about the program presented by the religious Zionist party wanting to restart or to reboot the legal system. We are all the time speaking about the problems of the legal system. But the real problem of the legal system, nobody is talking about. And that is the time the criminal proceedings take in Israel. Cases that we're hearing for five, six, or seven years in court. And this is really a problem. And, all, and we can see it in Netanyahu's case, because this case may take, if it will continue, for at least another three or four years. What kind of justice is, if you, if you have a citizen that has a cloud above his head, a dark cloud of a, of a criminal indictment, and, um, and he has to wait for five or six and seven years, and then perhaps to be declared uh, innocent. This is really a problem. But uh, the religious Zionist party is not dealing with it and not with other parties. They, they are dealing with the power. We want more power and we want to limit the power of the Supreme Court. So, I mean, one of the other ideas, I think also coming up from the religious Zionist party, but maybe, maybe others as well, um, in the context of other reforms, is that one of the one of the main charges of Netanyahu is this this notion of a breach of trust, um, and there are some that suggest this is a, a legally problematic term, which is too vague. Perhaps you could explain and um, unpack that a little bit for us. Okay, I will do. I uh, will try to. It's a, indeed the, the the program presented by the religious Zionist party has uh, several ideas that for me, you know, they sum up at, to something that is very similar to the legalization of corruption, because they do not only want to erase the crime of fraud and breach of trust, they want to enact as well what is called here a French law for the prime minister and for all the ministers. 
And a French law means that it, this French law, if it's passed, will not allow to investigate or to indict them during their mandate. They also want to expand parliamentary immunity and to prohibit the court from dealing with any Knesset decisions regarding immunity. Uh, so in a way, it means that there will be no equality before the law, uh, which is, I think, fatal for the rule of law. Now, I think it, it's what you said is, is right. The crime of breaches of trust is very big. If you, if you read the crime in, in, the, um, in the criminal law, it says that a public servant who in the performance of his duties commits an act of fraud or breach of trust that harms the public, uh, he shall be punished by three years imprisonment. So actually it is true that it's very vague, but this offense is our basic tool in the fight against corruption, because it means that the public figure, public uh, figures, the public servants are not allowed to pursue personal benefits from their office. That, you know, that, that government power that he receives from the public, from us, the, the power he received is for the good of the, and the welfare of the public and not for his own benefits. So he must not act in, in a conflict of interest. Thank you for that. Um, another issue that's on the agenda potentially to, to be reformed, to be changed, is the, the system by which uh, judges are appointed, the, uh, the selection committee, which and according to my understanding is made up currently of a panel of nine people four politicians, two from the government, two from the opposition, two members of the Israeli Bar Association, and three sitting judges that crucially need an agreement of seven out of the nine. Um, and the plan is to increase the political influence. Um, is that correct? And what would that, what would that do to the process of selecting judges, in your opinion? First of all, let me tell you something about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of Israel is not only the Supreme Court of Justice, the Supreme Court of Israel deals mainly appeals from the districts, meaning that he is also the criminal court of appeals and the civil court of appeals in the country. This composition of the committee that you just told us seeks to balance the and therefore, therefore it includes representative of the three branches. They have two ministers, and two members of the Knesset and three judges, and also two representatives of the Bar Association. And of course, as you said, um, we cannot select judges from the Supreme Court without the consent of the political parties because a majority of seven out of nine is required. And this principle actually, you, the idea of the, the committee usually leads to the consensual selection of candidates to a compromise. Now, the balance between the professional and the political is very important in Israel because it preserves the, independent of, the independence of the judges. And in Israel, like we spoke before, unlike most democracies, the judiciary is the only factor restraining the power of government, okay? And also in Israel, unlike most democracies, there is no entrenchment in the constitution of the, the, the several arrangements that guarantee the independent status of the judges. For, for example, the tenure, the date of their retirement, the way they're appointed, everything can be changed by a simple majority of two versus one. 
you can, you know, erase the Supreme Court of Israel by a regular basic law, okay, two versus one. It is not, it does not need even 61. It, it, this law can be changed by a simple majority. And I think this selection method is not unusual and, and can be seen also in, in the world as, a as part of a trend that is moving to selection models that are similar to the Israeli models, with, with, with a lot of, of people, with members are representative from, from several authorities. Okay. It is not unusual in a comparative uh, way. For example, you have appointments, uh, committees that include professionals or in consultation with professionals, also in Britain, in, in Greece, in, in Canada, in, in, in Australia, and uh, also in, in, in other countries, you need uh, a cooperation between the authorities, France, Belgium, Austria, or, or a very, very large majority of the parliament, okay, which means not only coalition, but also opposition. So therefore, I, 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 it is a real threat to the, to the independence of the judiciary in Israel. It's, it's really, it's, it's here. It's, it's here as part of the plan of, of, um, of, of the, the religious Zionism, um, which actually they, they propose to erase everything that is independent and professional and objective in the public system. Okay, they want the judicial system to be theirs, to be ours, in the for the politicians in power. They, and therefore, it is very problematic for Israel because it's the only branch, it's the last branch with the power to live in, with the power to limit government. Well, these are these are fate, fateful days that we await to see exactly how the uh, how it develops. And as you say, we should wait and see the details of the laws, the bills that are that are proposed to understand the full ramifications. Um, but thank you so much indeed for, for, for enlightening us and, and sharing your perspective. Thank you, Richard.